Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. So, 
Um, could they do it? Sure, they could do it. I, I don't know if they will. I don't know if the agents will allow it. I think the agents are using this, you know, to sort of make sure that their clients do get the best amount of money, which is what they're hired for. Uh, but yeah, they could do something like that down the road. I, I think it would have to, you know, be something that the players' association would agree with. Now, this is just like an idea being thrown out there. What would you think of like MLB doing something along the lines? Because like, winter, the winter meetings was always like the big uh, week where all the big uh, guys got signed, all the big contracts went down. Could you see something down the road of, like, um, there's, like, the deadline at the end of the winter meetings, everybody's got to sign. So, like, regardless of, like, the type of a deal that they want, yeah, do you no, think, I, like, I, something... I yeah, I think that's too early, probably. I mean, I do think that there's, some obviously, some spice when that happens, when guys sign during the winter meetings. But I still think that's too early, the way the negotiations have gone. Um, you know, it, it, to me, it would probably have to be after the first of the year if they were to do anything like that. You know, maybe close to, you know, closer to the 15th of February. Right. Yeah, before camps really begin. But I think the, the winter meetings might be a little too early for that. And so given, like I said, Keuchel's still out there, Kimbrell's still out there. Kimbrell was on the Phillies' radar at some point during this offseason. Could you see him as a potential uh, fit in Philly? Well, I, I think now the way things are, um, the bullpen is in pretty good shape from a Philly standpoint. And depending on what his dollar figure is, I don't know where he fits pr- appropriately. Um, the fact that David Robertson is now here, I think that helps the Phillies and helps the back end of their bullpen. They're really high on a lot of the younger players, and I am too, uh, that could possibly slide into those effective spots of the bullpen. Um, you know, Tommy Hunter is, is, is down with an injury right now, but they still have depth that you know, could, could take, you know, take that spot uh, until Tommy is back healthy again. So I don't know. I mean, uh, do I think that they need a closer of, of Craig's bill? I mean, you never want to say no to somebody like that, but I think financially, um, you know, it all depends on what he's asking for and, and what he's seeking. Uh, I, I haven't, I haven't officially heard any other uh, anything from his camp about what he, he's looking for, but what I've read is that five or six years, and that, that may be a little deep for for a closer in this day and age, but I think the Phillies are in pretty good shape from a from a bullpen standpoint. Just for Kimbrel's sake, I think he went out and said that he'd he'd be willing to hold out the entire year if he didn't get the contract for the money that he wanted. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I find that hard to believe. I, I mean, that's just you know, for to me at his age to give up a year um, that would be really hard to do. But I mean, you know, maybe he does. But I, I think it's it would probably be more appropriate for him to sign a one year deal or a two year deal to sit out a whole year. Yeah, I, I really don't understand. I mean, he's only hurting himself, I feel like, sitting out an entire year. Given, I mean, again, a one-year deal, he's going to have to bank on himself to have another really good year. Yeah. I know the yeah. postseason was kind of rough with him in Boston, somehow managed to get through that. But he's still really good, though. Yeah. He's still really good. But, yeah, I, I think, again, it, it, it's it's his life and it's his career. Uh, he'll handle it the way he feels suited, the way he feels appropriate. Uh, but I would think it's hard to sit out, you know, at this point in his career. Uh, okay, so here's the big question. So obviously Bryce Harper on the Phillies' radar. They've offered him at least $300 million, if not more. It, it, we'll see what Bryce does. But in a few years down the road, South Jersey native, of course, Mike Trout becomes a free agent. A, do you think the Phillies could make a run for Trout if he's not extended by the Angels at that point? And B, does Mike Trout receive over $500 million? Oh, boy, that's a, that's a heck of a question. Uh, I don't think he gets over $500 million. Um, I could be wrong because the landscape could totally change by the time right. he's a free agent. You know, he's a wonderful player. He's the best player in the game right now. Uh, you know, the Phillies, John Middleton, the Phillies, one of the, the Phillies' majority owner, uh, has said that, you know, the, that, that the, 
the dollars are there for the Phillies to make moves. So I think without knowing or without talking to anybody, I would think that if he's available, uh, that every team will be making an offer for him, including the Phillies. Uh, but I don't think it'll be $500 million. But again, the landscape could change by then. I mean, who would have thought that somebody would make $300 million at this point? For sure, for sure. I mean, Machado, I didn't think Machado was going to get his money. I honestly didn't. And it looks like Harper's going to get his money. Yeah, I did. I, I thought he would get it. I just I just felt like there were teams out there that were interested in whether it be the White Sox, the Padres, or even the Phillies. And I'm not saying the Phillies would have given him $300 million, but I thought there would be teams out there that would do it. The 10 years is the thing that, that's right. interesting to me. It's just a, But again, he's got the opt-out, so for both teams, maybe he does wind up opting out, opting out after five years. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, again, he basically becomes like the rest of them, the guys like A-Rod and Pools, dare I even say Jacoby Ellsbury. It just doesn't pan out for him in five years. He basically has that option to just stick it out and yep. get his money. So, and, and, and again, we'll only be 20, we'll only be 31 years old. So, <laughs> I mean, uh, so that the baseball portion of that, I just want to get into a little bit about your career first. So growing up in broadcasting, was it always the dream to be a broadcaster growing up? Well, it was actually the dream to play baseball yeah. uh, growing up. I went to college to play baseball. Uh, I never really thought I could could do this uh, I really didn't know what I wanted to do uh, I knew I wanted to be in sports in some capacity and when I stopped playing basketball and baseball in college um, I wanted to stay within the sports world and I started writing actually and I thought well that's kind of cool being a sports writer uh, and I loved it I thought it was one of the greatest things but then I, I started broadcasting some of my college's games uh, as the color commentator for football and I really enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed the the adrenaline. I enjoyed it the I enjoyed the natural high that I was able to get from broadcasting games. Uh, and I thought, well, maybe I'll do this a little bit too. So I just started doing like high school games and some college games around the the Trenton area. And one thing kind of led to another. And I was really fortunate to have some really good bosses uh, at the newspaper that I worked at because they let me do both at the same time. And I was really fortunate to have a lot of people. Um, who wanted to have games broadcast when I was starting out. So that's where I really got the niche. But I did not know. I always wanted to be a broadcaster, I think, in the back of my mind if I wasn't going to play. But when I was growing up, I didn't know anybody that had done this. So it was hard for me to say I could do it. I knew an accountant. I knew my dad worked for the phone company. I knew lawyers. I knew guys that owned their own business. But I never knew a broadcaster. So I didn't know I could do it. And I think it wasn't really until I was maybe my first year out of college that I thought, okay, I could probably do this for a living along with sports writing, so let's give it a whirl. Yeah, and did you act, like you obviously said, you didn't really have anybody around you who was a broadcaster, but going up through the ranks, did you have any uh, mentors? Uh, well, I was broadcasting, yes. I mean, uh, obviously uh, getting a chance to be in the big leagues at an early age, because I was 32 when I first started, being able to lean on the guys that were at the Phillies, whether it be Andy Musser, Chris Wheeler, or HK, um, those were huge for me because they would help me with a variety of things. Scott Graham would help me with things when it came to the pre- and post-game show. Uh, but I've also been able to befriend a lot of guys in the business, um, from Ernie Harwell, who was unbelievable uh, to me as a spotter and as a stat guy when I was in my mid-20s. And he would show me certain things that I could do to be better as a broadcaster. And you know, he's, he was one of the most incredible people that I, that I ever met in this game. Um, the guy that really helped me get started was a guy by the name of Rich Jablonski, who was a minor league broadcaster in Charleston, South Carolina, who actually gave me a chance to go on the air for the first time. And I used those tapes when I was 25 years old to get my first professional job with the Trenton Thunder. So 
you know, that, those guys were the ones that really helped me. And then, you know, Gary Cohen from the Mets was always a huge help for me. Um, and Vince Scully was always a huge help for me when I was just getting started. So, um, you know, those were the guy, kind of the guys that I leaned on. I asked a lot of questions because I, yeah. you know, about how to, how to structure a, a broadcast, how to structure an inning. You know, I asked about home run calls because I'm not a huge believer that you should have a home run call specifically because I think every home run is different. Uh, you know, different things like that. And, like, going into it, obviously everybody kind of wants, wants to have their, uh, like, home run call. Did you ever, like, uh, have any, like, ideas before what you eventually went with? Well, no, I mean, not really. I mean, when I was in the minor leagues, you know, the, the commissioner of the Eastern League was John LaVenda, and I used to say goodbye John LaVenda when the ball went over the wall. <laughs> um, and I did that for a few, like, for, for one season, and I, I was like, and, and I, I only did it, I did it the first time just as a joke more than anything else just to kind of have some fun. And then I did it a second time, and then all of a sudden somebody wrote a story about it in Baseball America. Uh, so I stayed with it for the entire year. And John got a huge kick out of it that I would use that as my home run call. Uh, but I, I, I grew up using, uh, using Out of Here because most people did that, uh, but nobody did it as well as Harry did it because his voice is so yeah. incredible. Uh, when I sort of transitioned to the big leagues, I, I didn't want to, I, I couldn't use Out of Here because that was Harry's. Um, so I just I started saying gone and and you know to me I really truly believe that that no home run is the same you know some are line drives some are really high fly balls if I know it's gone off the bat I know, you know I'll, my voice will be different but I do think that every home run has a different personality so I try to keep it with that uh, that's how I've always approached it and you mentioned before you uh, broadcasted during college and even in high school. Talk to me a little bit about your experience broadcasting both Princeton football, basketball, and Rutgers football. Well, those were all great. I mean, those were the, that was sort of the natural progression for me. Is, uh, I went from doing the College of New Jersey football, which is where I went, to then eventually doing Princeton football. I loved doing Princeton football and basketball. So I did Princeton football for five years, and I did Princeton basketball for nine years. And that, to me, was a, a huge step forward from doing high school games and from doing Division three games. Um, but I got to see some really good teams football-wise and some great teams basketball-wise. When I left to go from Princeton to Rutgers, I didn't know if it was the right move because, you know, Princeton had so many good teams. But as it turned out, it was a, a, the, one of the greatest experiences I had doing Rutgers football because I met, you know, two of my now best friends, and that was Tim Pernetti, who eventually became the AD at Rutgers, and Chris Carlin who was our sideline reporter and eventually took over for me when I left. Um, but meeting those two opened so many doors for me personally, but also professionally, uh, that led to me going to CBS because Tim was a vice president at CBS. Um, so those day, those years, even though they were tough years, I mean, we would go to, to, to facilities like West Virginia and we would lose by, six, by 60 points. Uh, they weren't the easiest games to do, but it was a great experience. And obviously, it, it's very different. So, major league opposed to like college. I know broadcasting in college, you have to go through like the SIDs, you got like bus rides, even in high school. Yep. Well, like, what would you say like is the biggest difference between both like college compared to the pros? Because obviously, there's a lot of differences. Yeah, there, there are a lot of differences. I mean, I, I do think that the the personalities are very different because you're dealing with kids uh, on on one level in college for the most part and adults when it comes to the professional ranks and i, I don't know if that that makes any sense or not but yeah, yeah. you know the, the kids are still learning how to deal with the media and deal with the broadcasters and are so open-minded to things and, and and really good to be around 
from that standpoint because it's the first time they're seeing a lot of it and experienced a lot of it. Major League-wise, these guys have all experienced a million things already. Um, so there's a little different way you go about it. Um, but that's the biggest thing. I mean, I, I enjoy both. I mean, I, I love doing baseball games, obviously, and I love doing NFL games. Uh, but I really enjoy going to college campuses. I was at Michigan, Michigan State this past weekend, and I thought that was an incredible atmosphere to, to get a chance to broadcast the game. I never, ever take any of that stuff for granted. It's, it's pretty cool. Growing up, just getting into the business, like you said that you wanted to be a player before you ever got into broadcasting. No, that's, that's exactly oh, what I, okay. I wasn't good enough. I wasn't good enough, but I did, I did, I did want to do that. Getting into broadcasting first, did you have any like glimpses where like you just like felt like you said something wrong, or somebody approached you, like just saying like maybe you should try something differently that time? Were there any like stories? Maybe sometime, like maybe at some point you said something wrong, and like a parent approached you, especially in like high school or college. Well, yeah, I mean, I've always had people. You know, there's always instant criticism. I mean, now it's, I mean, it's instantaneous when it comes oh, yeah. to. Uh, Twitter and, and Facebook and Instagram and Snapchat and, and, and the internet as a whole. Uh, I, I've never really had anybody tell me, you know, uh, pronunciations are always a big thing that, you know, parents will say, you know, the name's not pronounced that way, it's pronounced this way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's, that's always been, you know, that's always been one of the primary things. Um, I do think grammar is a big thing. You know, we all speak for a living, but we all make mistakes for a living grammatically. Those are some of the, the those are some of the I, I had one one person tell me that I was using the word often incorrectly, that it was often. And I was trying to explain to them that it's either way, it's often or often. And this person was not buying it. Like he was not buying that there's two ways to say it. Um, and I found myself having this conversation with them thinking, Well, what's the big deal? I mean it, it, it's it's often or often. It depends on who you are. So now I actually, it's kind of a, it's kind of something that I do with, uh, from time to time. I'll say it often, or I'll say it often, just to kind of say it uh, both ways, moving, you know, from time to time. But that's really the biggest thing. I mean, uh, players will will ask you about something that may be said on a telecast or a radio broadcast, and you just explain to them what they what what you said, um, and that's pretty much been it, you know. So. I think grammar is one of the big things and pronunciations are the big things. And obviously you have all these years under your belt. Your son, Pat, now broadcasting. Has he had any of uh, experience like this in these instances? No, I don't think so. I mean, he's just, you know, he's sort of, he's still learning uh, and still, you know, going through the same things I went through at his age, although he's far and away better than I was at any point when I was 23 years old. Uh, heck, he's better than I was when I was 26 years old. So, you know, he's, he's kind of just learning as he goes through. I mean, I'm sure he'll have some things that he, you know, he'll have the same type of things uh, that he has to deal with. But nothing, you know, nothing that, nothing I, I can think of that stands out. Yeah, and definitely over time, going to evolve as a broadcaster either way. And was that always his goal, or was he more of the same like you, was a player first and got into it? Yeah, I think, well, he was a college player. Um, he was actually a recruited basketball player at high school but played baseball in college uh, as a pitcher. I don't know if he really knew he wanted to do this until he was maybe a sophomore in college. Uh, he and my other son, who's a senior in college, who plays baseball too. Um, you know, both of them have have done both of them have done it in college. It wasn't really until Pat was maybe a sophomore or junior that he thought I, I could probably do this for a living because he can. I mean, he's 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 pretty good at it. You know, he's getting better with each passing game that he has. So. Um, 
I, I don't think he definitively knew he wanted to do this, but I think it's something that he grew into. You talked about your experiences growing up. So once you got to the pros, Phillies, uh, radio, play-by-play, and then you went over to the Trenton Thunder, who were the Red Sox double-A affiliate at the time. Tell me a little bit about those experiences. Yeah, so I started out doing the Thunder back in 1994. I was there until the 2000 season. Um, you know, working for minor league baseball, I think, was one of the best things I ever did because I was also an executive in the front office. So I was the PR director for the first four years, and then I was the assistant general manager for the time after that, for the years after that. Um, you know, I, there was a point in 2000 where I had to decide that I wanted to just be a broadcaster. So I had to give up being the assistant GM and really concentrate on my broadcasting. And then several months later is when the Phillies asked me to fill in in September of 2000 um, for Scott Graham, who was who has stepped away to do some uh, football. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.